another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world The changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't. Um, today is going to be episode 354 of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday, January 12th, 2010. And uh, today we're going to talk about food storage. I realize we haven't done a show, you know, specifically on food storage for quite a while. And uh, we probably need to do that. So that's what we're going to do today. And uh, hopefully it'll be beneficial to everybody. I've had some questions about food storage lately. And some misconceptions about my views about it, such as, well, what about long-term storage? Why don't you, and I definitely am for long-term storage. So we're going to go back through that subject today, and um, I'm going to point you to an article that I've written in the past about the subject for uh, for reading and for passing on to uh, to others who maybe don't want to sit down and listen to a podcast that's going to cover a lot of the things I'm going to talk about today as well. Before that, though, we need to go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. Let's start out with uh, sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is, is a great company to do business with. People that really care, they're dead solid in their support of the Survival Podcast. Um, remember, member support brigade uh, folks get a 25% discount off of all purchases from Western Botanicals uh, because they give members brigade people um, a 50 dollar uh, membership uh, for free that makes you a preferred customer of Western Botanicals. Anything you could possibly want from whole herbs to herbal preparations, Western Botanicals is a good source to get them. Check them out. Again, they are a strong supporter of the show and the audience uh, by participating in, the, in our MSB program. Uh, next up is SOE Tactical Gear, uh, another strong supporter of the show. I want you guys to realize John Willis started sending gear to the Survival Podcast when there were like 30 or 40 people listening to us. There's now over 10,000 people a day downloading and listening to our show. And he started out supporting us with gear uh, when there were, you know, 40-odd folks here. And that's a pretty big commitment. And it's because he knew that if he put his gear in front of me that I would tell you it's the best gear that I've ever seen. Uh, because it is. And he knew that, and that's why he was confident enough to support the show back then. I guess he believed in what we were doing. Consider giving John some business. With that, let's move on. Join our forum. Get involved with our forum. Um, it's so important to have community. You're not going to make it uh, as an isolationist. That is not um, the way to be in, in any way, shape, or form um, should you be an isolationist. And starting with a community that's online is a lot easier for people that maybe aren't accustomed to telling people about who they are and what they do. So get involved with our forum. Um, check out our gear shop. We have really cool stuff there. Uh, the Challenge Coins should start shipping in February. I'm really excited about those. I'm also going to be giving away some Survival Podcast t-shirts. Um, not this week. Maybe I'll do one this week, but I'll probably start doing a whole bunch of giveaways next week. Uh, next up, join the Member Support Brigade. Um, I'm going to ask you to do that today. Um, if you join the Member Support Brigade, um, you're not just going to be supporting the show anymore. You're going to get an immediate return of investment. Uh, there are so many things in the Members Brigade uh, right now that it's amazing. There's discounts from so many people. There's uh, there's a free lifetime membership to Safe Castle Royals uh, Discount Club. There's the preferred membership for Free to Western Botanicals. Those two alone, you're looking at $79, and a membership is $50 a year. Uh, so that's why I ask you to support the show that way. I'm trying to build it up to where it gives back. I mentioned Seeds of Change yesterday. Uh, the deal's done now, but we have to wait for their webmaster to get back from vacation to set it up. Uh, we are going to be giving all MSB members 10% off on Seeds of Change orders uh, for the lifetime of your membership. Uh, that's that's pretty awesome. So consider joining the MSB. I, I've made a commitment to you guys, and I won't fall back on it. I will keep building that. By the end of this year, I bet you there will be $1,000 worth of value in there for 50 bucks. That's how I'm going to run my business. I'm going to make sure I give you more than I ever asked for. And with that, let's go ahead and knock out uh, or get into the main topic of today's show. And like I said, we're going to talk about food storage today in, in a variety of ways. And I want to drive home how important this is. I talk to a lot of people that consider themselves preppers and survivalists. 
Uh, and they even have a little bit of extra food around. Maybe they have a, you know, I, I often say you can start out very simple with food storage. One of the first steps you can take is get yourself some five-gallon buckets or maybe a couple big uh, Tupperware tubs. Go out, get some rice, beans, pasta, pasta sauce, uh, canned tuna, canned chicken, canned beef, anything that will store long-term more than two years. Uh, and fill those up and hopefully occasionally pull from them. So with your, like your easy things to pull, most people eat pasta once in a while, uh, you know, pasta sauce, crushed tomatoes, things like that. Rotel tomatoes are good for cooking other things and making them flavored, but you can use them on a day to day basis. So if you rotate a little bit out of those two tubs or one big tub, at least you've got enough food probably. One of those big Tupperware tubs, if you fill it with stuff like that, you should be able to survive. Not maybe be real happy, but survive for at least two weeks, if not longer for most families and that would extend the the uh, the ability of families to shelter in place or to go somewhere and take food with them if necessary and um, maybe they do that much but if you stop there you're really missing the boat last night I was watching a show called after Armageddon and the disaster scenario in it was a major pandemic a deadly pandemic, one that's killing people left and right and scaring people so that they do stay home. So eventually, things like the electrical system, uh, the, the, the phone system, all of the systems that we're so dependent on for communications, the Internet begin to fail because nobody will go to work and a lot of the people that were willing to go to the work have now caught this disease and are either dead, dying, or too sick to work anymore. And they said some interesting statistics like, we have over 300 nuclear plants in the United States, but there's only 5,000 people in the United States qualified to run them. And when they say run them, they mean key personnel. So not top guys that can walk in and take the top level, but there are 5,000 key personnel. And if you got rid of those people, those 300 plants can't be run efficiently or effectively or possibly at all anymore. 5,000 people. And nuclear is a big part of our power. Now, we have our other power systems. Well, we would see power failures. That was the point. Now, as I watch this, I, I, I love these documentaries, but I always hate how they have to add a human element because they get the worst actors on the planet. And, and to be fair to the actors, they write horrible scripts for these actors. And this lady, because you know, they show this with his mom, this dad, and his son. And the lady's freaking out. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, Just like that. That's how she sounded. And I'm like, oh my god, shut up. So I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but it got me thinking is, I watched the kid in this, this little family scenario with his little video camera, and he's scanning, he goes, looks like we're going to be here for more than three days, and he said, why do we have so many green beans? I don't like green beans, you know, typical kid stuff, and I guess that was realistic, but the, the pile of food that they had amassed is they realized this was a problem. These guys were not survivalists, they were not preppers, the guy worked in the medical industry in some ways, a paramedic or something like that, he had went, ran off to the hospital, uh, couldn't get in used his coat, got in, stole some medical supplies, and grabbed as much food off the shelves as he could as the crisis became evident. And they had this little pile of food. Maybe, maybe a week. Stretched out, and everybody's hungry, two weeks. That was it. And I got to thinking how important food really is and how in all these disaster scenario TV shows... They always show these people scraping to get by, and they always seem to survive long term, and they always seem to find something to eat, but it's not very realistic now, is it? But the one most realistic thing about this show is when it comes to the mass scale global disaster, choosing pandemic as the thing that could cause it is spot on. It is the most dangerous threat that we have the civilization that there is. A disease does not care if you're wealthy or poor, well-to-do or a street thug. It does not care if you have a good or a bad family name. It doesn't care if your job makes you important or unimportant. It doesn't care if you're six months old or 60 years old. A disease infects, and a deadly disease infects and kills a certain portion of the population. Now, we all know about the overreaction to swine flu. Right, and we all know that now the government's trying to like get you to take your shot because like it kind of fizzled out, didn't really have. Now what their news reports are saying, there, there's, there's a second round of swine flu coming. Run out and get your shots. And what did they say after that? 
the government's afraid, get this, I heard this yesterday on one of the major talking head networks, the government is afraid that if more people don't go out and get immunized for the swine flu, that millions of doses will be thrown away because it will expire. They're not worried about whether you get sick. They're worried about all these doses is getting thrown away. What has this told us? It's told us that people have said to the government, a giant simultaneous middle finger, we don't trust your rust vaccine for a disease that's not deadly. But you know what? Swine flu could have been deadly. SARS could have got out uncontained and been deadly. The avian flu that infected a few people could have mutated just a little bit more. So it infected a lot of people with person-to-person transmission. Bubonic plague could come back someday in a way that we don't understand. I don't even believe that the Black Death, folks, was the bubonic plague. I think it was a different disease. I've read a lot of research on it. And bubonic plague doesn't match, for me sufficiently, the description of what the Black Death really was. I think that was a completely different disease, or a mutated strain of plague, possibly, that went dormant, that was able to travel faster than plague is supposed to be able to travel. The fact that we don't have plague epidemics, period, and we have plague carriers out all over, we have plague carriers in the United States right now. There's rats and mice and, and different rodents in the, uh, in the whole western United States that carry bubonic plague. We have very few incidences of infection. Sanitation helps that, I know, but you can do the research for yourself. So I thought we were going to talk about food stores today. Why am I spending so much time on pandemic? Because it's the one thing that I think is a universal threat that is a matter of when, not if. Sooner or later, there'll be one. Now, you might not live to see it, or it could start tomorrow morning. That's a reality. And it's the one thing I think that we really need to think about a couple of the things that we talk about with modern survivalism and being a prepper. And one is bug in versus bug out. Everybody wanted to leave the cities. Well, if everybody leaves the cities, they take their dense populations and reassign them somewhere else. And then they spread things into the countryside. So I believe in bugging out if you have a place to go and you have a plan to get there. But in most instances, in a pandemic situation... You could limit your exposure to almost nothing simply by keeping the family home, not interacting with your neighbors any more than you absolutely had to, kind of doing a self-imposed quarantine and waiting 60 to 90 days for the worst of it to pass. And it probably would. And as long as you could keep a reasonable amount of, of temperature control in your home, and feed yourself and provide water for yourself, you might not be real happy, you might be miserable, miserable, you might have a lot of financial problems when you get through it, but you'll still be alive. But the one thing you have to have to pull that off is food. You know, that 90 day or more supply of food. That's why I talk about this stuff so much in depth at the beginning of this episode. I want to drive home to you the importance of food storage, and that having a good pile of food stocked up somewhere doesn't make you a freak. Again, I talked yesterday about our power going out in Arkansas. Go shut your main breaker off right now. Go do it. Leave it off for two hours. Your food won't spoil in two hours. You know? Start asking yourself, what would I do if it was going to be like this for 90 days and I couldn't leave? Just psychologically place yourself into that. And you'll immediately see that other than if it's very cold out, freezing to death, or very hot out, sweltering in the heat, the other thing that you'll start thinking of is food. It is that important. There's a reason that we have the cliche in the United States, and in many parts of the world, I would imagine, I've got to put food on the table. So what are my rules of food storage? Well, food storage rule number one for people that have listened to this show for a long time will come is absolutely no surprise whatsoever is store what you eat. It's the way that I recommend that people start. It is the fastest, quickest, easiest, least expensive way uh, that you can begin to create some level of redundancy, and it's your fastest path to 30 days of self-sufficiency and sustainability. Now, here's here's kind of a rule of thumb. This is not a hard rule, but it's a rule of thumb. A 30-day supply of eat what you store and store your eat food will probably last you, if you're rotating it, somewhere between 60 and 90 days, because you don't just eat that. In other words, if you have, as part of your eat what you store and store what you eat plan, um, pasta and sauces and canned tomatoes and other things that you might use to enhance that type of food. Um, when you cook that food, 
odds are, if you're like me, you're breaking out of the freezer or the refrigerator if it's already been defrosted, uh, a big old pile of Italian sausage or maybe beef or something like that, and you're browning some beef and you're adding it and you're making it with meatballs or sausage or just crumbled meat in the sauce, right? That's just one typical example of a perfect match of food that's not long-term storable, um, out of the out of the freezer because once the freezer's gone, it's not there anymore. And food that can sit on the shelf for for a year. So in that disaster scenario, once the freezer and refrigerator are cleaned out, now we're down to pasta and sauce. Now you need to eat more of that to get the same caloric intake, right? So that same jar of pasta sauce and uh, bag of spaghetti doesn't last as long when we remove all the other things that we would have with our meal. And that's true of everything else. So what you're looking at doing is building a 60 to 90 day redundant uh, storable pantry. Which means if you didn't go to the grocery store for any of the stuff in the pantry, it might last two to even three months for you. Right? And the pantry might not be big enough for that. So you might have these in these tubs or buckets or some type of other container or shelving somewhere else in the house and you rotate this through. But that gets you to at least 30 days you could survive on even if the refrigerator and freezer didn't work. And I want you to think about going further with that. You can take that up to between 90 days to 6 months of total survivability just with that practice. And that is going to take you out between 6 months to a year of independence from those products from a store as long as you're bringing in other items. So you start to see there's a holistic process going on here. Because maybe we can't get beef anymore, but if we live in the country, maybe we can shoot a deer and augment the meat supply. Maybe we can pop a squirrel a day or two a day for a while during certain parts of the year. Maybe we can trap uh, small game or small birds around our property. All right. So there's other ways to augment that. We'll get into those types of things in a minute. But if you build up, a good solid 90 day, I can survive on this stuff. I might not be happy eating spaghetti with no meat, right? Or whatever else there is in that, that, you know, pinto beans without ham or what have you. Or, you know, making bread with uh, certain parts of things that I normally would include not there, but I'll be able to be able to do these things. All right. So, eat what you store, story E, rule number one. As you begin to do that, what you'll understand, as, as I said, when you get to a 30-day sustainability, you have 60 to 90 days worth, worth of resiliency on those items. You get to a 90-day sustainability, you have six months or longer. And what that allows you to do is you go to the store and you go, we used uh, a box of noodles, I should replace the noodles. The noodles are pretty cheap, so it's a bad example. But you, what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to go in and say, okay, I've been, you know, you'll have your your standard grocery list, right? Because you go to the grocery store to buy the things you want, things that you need to be used this week. Um, some that's come up, you decide you want to cook steaks on a grill, you need those. Then you have your other list, and these are your storables that are kind of been used somewhat lately, and how many you've used, little number next to them, three, two, one, eight, right? And the eight is obviously a higher priority than the two. And But you go look at the eight, and you go, it's not on sale, don't have a coupon, looks like the price is actually a little high this week, nothing's going on, I'm not scared about any type of uh, of an event happening anytime soon. So you just say, you know what, I'll put that off to next week, I'll keep my eye out for a coupon or a deal or a special somewhere. It's called opportunity buy. And the more sustainability you have, the greater leverage you have, you don't have to buy things. And if you watch, most items in a supermarket during a 12-week period will go on sale one to two times. And by the time you have that type of sustainability built up, you can buy those items only when you have a coupon or they're on sale or there's some type of an opportunity to purchase them at a lower price. And that is a little thing in the beginning, very little. But the longer you go and the more food you store, the more power you have in that way. And that's why I say storing food is a no-lose proposition. You immediately begin to start putting money back into your pocket if you practice. Eat what you store, store what you eat, and follow that up with an opportunity to buy. Now, once we get somewhere between 30 
to 90 days of sustainability of EWU store, store what you eat in. Now we start looking at long-term storables as an augmentation or an adjunct to what we're already doing. One more thing before I move on. Why do we start with EWU store, store what you eat? Because if you have a spouse, it doesn't matter male or female, because um, I have females that listen and say my husband doesn't get it, and I have many men that listen and say my wife doesn't get it. Talking to your wife or your husband that's not totally on board into let's just kind of have some extra food here and some extra food here, some extra food here, is a lot easier when it's, hey, we're just going to buy some more spaghetti this week. Uh, we're just going to buy some more sauces. You know what? We're going to buy a couple packages of those 15 different variety bean packages and put those over here. And you like when I make soup with that, right? Yeah, okay, great. Uh, and we're going to buy a little bit of this. And over you know a three-month period, getting to 30 days that way is easy. And you almost pull it right underneath the nose, like it's right there. But what happens is, is the food supply builds up, right? Somewhere in that 60-day period that you're getting up to 30 days of stored food, your spouse will start to change a little bit. They'll start to realize the wisdom. It feels good to know, hey, there's food on the table for a month. For men, it takes the pressure off us. Men, even if both spouses work, we carry a burden. It's my responsibility to put food on the table. It's my responsibility to keep a roof over our head. So it's easier to sell a not totally onboard partner to start there. Once you do that, it also gets easier then to take the next step, which is we need some long-term storables. So what I think you do next is you start looking at things like, you know, Mountain House, Yoders, Providing Pantry, um, all of the specifically prepared for the survivalist uh, demographic, for the prepper demographic foods. Um, this is where you look at most of it is dehydrated, or I mean, uh, I'm sorry, freeze-dried foods. Now, this is where some people, like, initially, when they freak out, they go overboard with this stuff. They go buy $6,000 worth of Mountain House food or $6,000 worth of uh, providing pantry food in one buy, and they have this giant... You know, truck show up at their house and a forklift drops it on their porch and then they go, wow, I, I didn't realize how, how much volume there was there. Where do I put all this stuff now? And then half of it's stuff they may never eat because they just bought some kind of package and they didn't think about it. So what I recommend is that you go out and you find like some variety packs. You know, you can buy things like four different or six different meat varieties from Mountain House. Go buy one. Buy two. Put one on the shelf. Bust the other one open and start using it. You know, the, the, the sausage crumbles are good. Um, the chicken's good. Uh, the beef's good. It's good stuff. Freeze drying is a very expensive method of preserving food. It's also the best. It lasts a long time, and when you rehydrate and cook the food, it tastes that you can't tell the difference between something that came out of, uh, you know, maybe you bought at the grocery store last week and uh, threw in the freezer, defrosted, and cooked. In fact, I'd say it generally actually tastes better than that, even if it's been stored for years. So you start to bring some of those things in. Now start to figure out how, because as we're bringing them in, we say, okay, we bought um, a, a thing of pork chops, Mountain House pork chops. Tonight I'm going to rehydrate them and cook them on the grill. And we're going to eat them with um, some canned corn that's part of our eat what we store and store what we eat and some rice. right? And, and, and that's going to be our meal tonight, pork chops, corn, and rice. Right, And that way we're now taking the two worlds, bringing them together, and actually eating them and putting some rotation even in with our long-term storables. Now, we may not make a regular practice of eating dehydrated or freeze-dried, rehydrated, cooked pork chops. Probably not going to do that. But we're going to do it at least once in a while. And when we say, you know what, those are really good, then as we're buying more long-term storables... We're going to buy that. If we happen to open up the sausage crumbles and make a pizza with it, and everybody goes, I don't really care for that. Well, we're not going to buy those in the future. And we're not going to buy a six-month storage package that has a great deal of those in them. Or we're going to contact the vendors. I don't want those. Can we do something about this? Right? This is a hybrid approach. It's bringing the two worlds together. Long-term, and eat what you store, store what you eat. It is the way to do this thing. And to do it right. it's For most people, it's the only way you're going to get to six months of sustainability. Six months of sustainability is really hard without some long-term storables. Um, there's some other things that we also need to, uh, to look at when we talk about long-term storables. One is, um, you know, your military meals, your MREs, meals ready to eat. Not a bad idea to have a few cases of those laying around. 
portable, um, relatively good food, most of them. Uh, they've come a long way since I was in the military. When I was in the military, there were 12 varieties of MREs. And you could see from a distance numbers on them, right? And the numbers would be 1 through 12. And there were two you did not want. One was a number 2 and one was a number 4. I don't remember which was which, but one was a ham slice, which was just gross. And the other one was an omelet with ham, which we referred to as the omelet with spam. And the other 10 you could basically eat. So if I was in a line and I started looking at a box being depleted and I realized it was going to be a 2 or a 4 was going to be my last choice, um, I would get out of that line and, and go to the back and wait and reset my position so I could get anything other than those. Those days are kind of gone. There's a lot more to MRE choices now. And I, I would not try to build a long-term storage capacity with them. But having, let's say, um, nine for each member of the family, there's your 72-hour emergency, easily evac food set, um, just at MREs. Immediately preparable. Um, one of the other things, though, you might look at doing is what's called field stripping them. Field stripping and MRE, they come, they're all sealed in a package, and then they're in a big package together. And each one of those individual packages is sealed for long-term storage. The big pack around them is really a holder. What you'll find is if you open them up, there's a lot of stuff in an MRE that you may have no real legitimate use for. Because what they do is they make it so there's choices there. So little bottles of hot sauce, for instance, and things like that. If you carry in your bug-out bag eating utensils, the eating utensils that are in there may not be necessary, not in all of them. And what you'll find is you can actually, in many times, by doing things like removing the boxes and just leaving the foil pouches and repacking an MRE reduces volume by 50%. Uh, Brian over at uh, ITS Tactical has a uh, great video on field stripping MREs. I'll try to link to that today uh, so you can look at what, what kind of volume saving can be done. So that'll take up a lot less space. All right, so for a family of four, if you're going to have nine of them, that's 36. Um, that's three cases. So you're talking about reducing the volume of three cases down to uh, the volume of a case and a half. And then using that other half case maybe for some other emergency supplies. As you start to store more and more, space becomes more and more critical. So that's my thoughts on MREs. If you said, should I have a month's worth of MREs in, in the home for every man, woman, and child in our house, I would say absolutely not. There are so many more affordable ways to provide a month's worth of food where the food is more likely to be used uh, than that. So there are a limit. The other thing I want to talk about with long-term storables are the very inexpensive, extremely long-term storables that can either be purchased prepackaged for long-term storage or you can do yourself. Uh, these do include pastas. I think a lot of people leave pastas out. Um, if you go out to the store and you buy a whole bunch of bags of pastas, right, and put them into a five-gallon bucket with a few O2 absorbers, that's going to last a long time. Um, it, the, the shelf life of pasta is almost infinite as it is. Um, if you were to vacuum seal it and then throw it into a, a five-gallon bucket with O2 absorbers with a gamma seal lid, I mean, you're talking about you'll be dead before you can't eat that. Another thing that fits that same description would be wheat or barley. Uh, hard winter wheat and barley have extensive long-term storage capacities. Uh, white rice, so... These are things that can go in the five-gallon sealed buckets with some O2 absorbers or can be vacuum-sealed and thrown into uh, some kind of a tub or something. One of the things you really have to be mindful of with things like this, though, is even if it's vacuum-sealed, if it's any kind of plastic, it needs to go into something very, very strong. The problem with Rubbermaid tubs, though I like them, is if they're in any kind of an area where they're subject to rodent invasion, rodents will chew directly through them. One of the, the things that can be done, for instance, five-gallon buckets, I've never seen a rodent get through a five-gallon bucket. Never. Now, if somebody might write me and tell me it has happened. I'll have to admit it if you can say that it did, but I've never seen it happen. So that's why I like five-gallon buckets. Another way, though, is to take vacuum-sealed product that maybe doesn't need to go in a five-gallon bucket, that's, that's, that's stored very well, and just the big, cheap, galvanized garbage cans. Put them into there and then close that lid down on top of them. And you can put some like weather stripping and even vacuum seal the entire thing if you can get a good seal. But it's generally not necessary if the stuff is already packaged sufficiently. But you have to think about protecting your preps, especially your long-term preps that you may not check on very often. 
Because it would be horrible to think, well, we have a thousand pounds of wheat, or five hundred pounds of wheat, or two hundred pounds of wheat, whatever it is, in you know four or five gallon buckets of wheat sitting out in our garage or our shed that we can rely on. And then when you actually need them, you go out there, and they've been infiltrated by rodents, and they're not just ruined because they've been consumed, but they have rodent fleas and feces and crap like that in them. And that's what happens if you don't protect things like that. A great long-term, cheap, storable, um, high-calorie, low-nutritional value, but it is high-calorie and high-fat. And it is a good adjunct to long-term storage. Goes back to, you know, my, my days right out of the Army when I was broke, ramen noodles. Right? But, man, rats and mice love ramen noodles. They'll do anything to get to them. So you've got to protect your foods. The other thing is with these things like wheat, rice, barley, um, you need to really make sure that you don't go crazy with these things. It is it is, it is the place where people go kind of nuts. They kind of go overboard. They end up with, you know, a 10-year supply of wheat berries. And, and it, it's a bit excessive, folks. Um now, if you think you could end up with half the family showing up at your little place out in the country, and you might have to feed them all, it might be the way to go if you have the space. But we have to be conscious of how much space we take up. And every time we take up space with something like wheat or rice, okay, that space that could be taken up with something we're more likely to actually use and rotate through on a day-to-day budget. So we bring these things together. So we bring the long-term self-prepared storables like wheat, rice, and barley with MREs in a small quantity, a, a sufficient quantity of commercially prepared long-term storage, and eat what you store, store where you eat stuff. When we put that together, we get to begin to really put together a very flexible uh, and portable uh, store of food. The next rule is uh, rule number four. And rule number four shouldn't surprise anybody that listens to this show often, and that's become a producer. Storage is finite. It cannot sustain any group of people forever. It cannot be done. The entire point of storing food is to make it through shortages so you don't panic, stress, die, or freak out so that you can make it through to another period of abundance either because society returns or you create it for yourself or as a community you get together and create it. But storage is designed for an acute situation. And even a relatively long-term situation is still an acute situation. But you can't go on forever that way. And you can't sustain yourself forever that way. And you don't create any real liberty for yourself with any of the things that we've talked up till now. You do create temporary liberty. Job really sucks. Dad's miserable. Comes home miserable every night. He's just, just God, he's boiling over. Because he's so mistreated at work. He so so hates his job, right? We've paid off the debt, because that's another part of our fundamentals. So we don't have any major debt. We have some money saved up. We can pay the mortgage and the electric bill for three to six months while Dad looks for a new job. And we have enough stored food that easily for 90 days we cannot go to the grocery store. And we'll still have another 90, because we had six months. We'll still have another 90 days worth of food. Mom still has some income coming in. Dad can do some little things to make some money while he's looking for a new job. Now he can quit. We created liberty. But it's temporary liberty. We still have to pay the taxes. Dad needs gas to go look for a job. Got to pay the electric bill. The money stopped flowing in at the same level. And the number one thing that we need food is in a finite state. So the storage has only created a temporary form of liberty. Now, if we're going to be preppers, if we're going to be survivalists, the thing that we, we should crave beyond all other things is freedom and liberty, and self-direction, and self-choice. The ability to do what we want, when we want, as long as we're not interfering with that ability for other people. And that's why I say libertarianism is very difficult to separate from survivalism and from prepping. Very, very. It's very difficult to be a hardcore neocon or a hardcore progressive liberal and really be a survivalist. It's, it's in fact, it's impossible. People that think they are are misleading themselves because they've, they've, they've grabbed onto some kind of political belief like a cult 
but their humanity is pulling them toward liberty. And they're in conflict. And if you think you're a hardcore Republican, if you think you're a hardcore Democrat, and you listen to me every day, you're only deceiving yourself. You're not. You're just not. Because government in and of itself restricts the rights and liberties of people. And we've given up too much. Food is a way to take that back. It is the one fundamental thing that people depend on more than anything else universally throughout the world. It is an inherent human concept that we must have full bellies or eventually we die. And even if we don't die, if we have enough to survive, we become miserable. When we become miserable because of lack of food, we become dependent upon anything that provides that food for us. So if we want just not to be able to get through the major flu pandemic that we need 90 days worth of sustainability for, but we want to create in our individual lives liberty and freedom from the systems that bind us to a conformity that we're uncomfortable with, so that we can then become Good citizens who pick and choose which systems they use by choice rather than are just rolling around in the systems due to dependence, then we must have a greater supply of food that can ever be accomplished with storage. So we must become producers. That is absolutely fundamental. Now when we start talking about becoming a producer, there's actually three levels of production. There is what I call, and they, these go in order of their effectiveness for long-term survival. Okay, Level one, which is the least effective for long-term survival, is fish and game. Hunting and fishing. Being able to go out and procure fish or squirrel or deer or any type of protein source uh, from the wild is, is level one. Level two um, is is actually level one also includes foraging. We'll talk about all these in depth in just a second. Level one also includes foraging. So foraging goes with fishing game because you go out and you uh, would would go out and maybe find blackberries and pick blackberries or blueberries or during certain parts of the country there's actually wild filberts, hazelnuts. You go out and pick those or acorns. Or uh, mesquite pods make a wonderful sweet flower. I mean, there's so many things out there that we could just go out and get. Right, so that's level one is, is foraging, hunting, and fishing. Level two is we go into direct production. Okay, direct production is gardening, permaculture, aquaculture, farming, ranching, livestock. All of that's level two. It's far more sustainable in a long-term survival environment than is fishing and hunting and foraging. And a lot of people take the exact exact opposite view of that, and I'll tell you why I think they're wrong about that. What they say is, well, if I have a nice garden and a little permaculture food forest on my property and some rabbits and some goats and we're in a survival situation, then I'm a target for, for people to come steal from me. In a long-term survival situation, if you're alive, you're a target for people to come steal from you. That's just a fundamental reality, folks. If you're in your home and you're alive and somebody observes that, and a week later you're still alive, well, you must have something. They're coming anyway. But when you look at a long-term survival situation, foraging, hunting, fishing, that's going to come under immense pressure. But the stuff that you have at your home is not under the same pressure, and you can defend it. And level three which really extends everything, is taking levels one and two, forage, fish, uh, game, uh, and and self-produced items, or even purchased items, and becoming a producer of storables. So let's let's go through these and my rationale, why I put them that way, and I think it'll make sense, and maybe some preconceived notions about survivalism and gardening and things like that. Maybe I can change those paradigms for you today. Some of the paranoia. Maybe we could take some of the paranoia away and make things more practical rather than paranoid. So let's start out with fish and game. Fish and game is great. Absolutely outstanding. I have a lake that's less than a 10-minute drive from where I live right now in Arlington called Joe Pool. Joe Pool from about March through September, I'd say all the way into November. I can go out there any day because I know the lake right now very well, and in that time frame, I can come home with 15 uh, to 25, which is the limit, sand bass, if I go alone. If I take somebody, we can bring home more than that. 
Sand bass are the greatest eating fish in the world. No, but they're not bad. They're really good uh, fried. They're okay grilled. Um, there's there's a lot going uh, for sand bass as a food source. Uh, they're highly reproductive. They don't live that long anyway. You can go out there and take a, a limit home on a big lake. Uh, Joe pulls silver at 7,000 acres. Me going out there and taking a limit home once a day for three straight months doesn't even make a dent in their population. They're stupid. They're a stupid fish. They really are. Sand bass fishing is not about being a good fisherman. It's about being good at finding them. If you can find them, you can catch them. It's just a matter of where is the little wolf pack gone today. And a lot of that can be said for stripers and hybrids. They're big brothers as well. So that, that source of food is available to me, and I can easily, uh, if I went fishing after, you know, let's say, 4 o'clock roll out to the lake and did that uh, every day for four days in a row, there's no reason I can't have over 100 fish other than the legal limit. So maybe I have to go a fifth day. But I have 100 fish in the freezer in a week. And my investment uh, to make that happen I have a little beat-up John boat with a five-horsepower motor. I wouldn't even go through the three-gallon tank of gas during that week. Uh, the electricity to charge my trolling motor. And it's $100 a year for a pass to be able to put my boat on the lake. So four or five fishing trips, that, that investment's fully recuperated. So that works. I can go hunting. I have land in Arkansas. I go up there, shoot a deer or two every year. Jerk it, biltong it, put it in the freezer, make sausage out of it, you name it. Um, 100 pounds of meat with three deer. Let's say there's it's a four four deer limit with a bonus tag five deer limit where I live in Arkansas five deer that I could take every year and I'm a pretty good deer hunter. Squirrels don't even have really a, a true closed season in Texas. I can go hunt for squirrels anytime I want. I have them in my backyard. I can sit out here with my pellet gun today and take to put half a dozen in the freezer. All of these things are true right now, but trust me, folks. We go into a survival, long-term survival situation, and they won't be. Everything will become under immense pressure. And that little lake that I can run out to, I won't be running out to that in the middle of a pandemic. Squirrels in my backyard, my neighbors that say, I'll never eat a squirrel, will be competing with me for the few that are left in a couple weeks. And I'll be doing things in my backyard that aren't even legal in a normal situation. I know how to make a trap that will catch hundreds of birds. And there's a ton of doves that come here every day to eat the seed that we throw on the ground for them. There's a reason I throw that seed on the ground for them every day right now. Because in a survival situation, I don't care what the season is, a bunch of them are going to become food. But only if we ever get there. Rule of law will not apply at that point. You know, And maybe if it does, they'll come arrest me and take me someplace where they'll feed me every day. So you can start to see immediately the inherent limitations of fish and game. Well, foraging works the same way. And you also have to put into these seasons and legal limits and licensing and accessibility. So even when we look at something like picking blackberries, I've never seen a state in the south where you can't find blackberries uh, in the summertime. The mountain I live on in Arkansas is literally infested with blackberries. And there's so many other things out there that we can just forage and eat. And many of us you know, partake in what we call gorilla gardening, which is we go out and we plant stuff out in the woods. We know where it is. We can go get it. It's kind of hidden. Not a bad idea. Good adjunct. It's all inherently limited. Let me put it to you this way. If you're out foraging, who's at home defending your house? Well, I guess mom is, right? But now your defenses are weaker at home. And you're vulnerable while you're away. Really, if you're going to go out foraging in a situation like that, you need at least two. Somebody's got to cover your back. You can be the biggest badass Rambo in the world. Somebody shoots you in the back, you're still dead. So I'm not real concerned about these massive, long-term, end-of-the-world, round-them-all-up, new-world-order survival scenarios that people have in their heads, the, the, the Red Dawn fantasies. But I'm a realist, and I tell you that we could end up in a societal collapse where it does happen. And a lot of the arguments that the, the, the people that are what I call a little bit foil hat, even their arguments for that, when you really examine it, start to fall apart. Because the fishing game won't be there, the wild forage won't be there, and going to acquire it will become dangerous. So it's best used today to augment what you're consuming today. And if you can have some of it available to you in a crisis situation, so much the better, but you sure as hell better not rely on it. 
So that brings us to sustainable uh, uh, survival technique two here of being a producer, and that's producing food in the form of small livestock like chickens and rabbits, gardening, and permaculture on property that you own and control that's in your line of sight from a dwelling that you will be in during that time. That could be a suburban lot, it could be a country house, or a bug out location in the mountains somewhere. See, the whole argument that people will come and steal what you have, again, it falls apart. If people are going to come steal what you have, they're not going to come, oh, look, he has a big garden, and his house is boarded up, but somebody's in there. Um, let's go steal from the garden guy and ignore the guy with the boarded windows. That type of a roving horde mentality, they just pick everything apart. They're not going to leave you alone because you don't have a garden in your backyard. That To me, that's an asinine belief. Even if you make your house look like no one's there, that, that roving horde that everybody fears would see an abandoned house as a perfect place to go. There's no resistance there. Who knows what's in there? We gotta go find out. They're coming anyway. So you're not, so to not feed yourself for that reason, it's just, it's just moronic. And it ignores the fundamental rule that we have here. Everything must create a better life for you today, even if nothing goes wrong. So having a sterile lawn that produces nothing for you, doesn't follow that rule. It costs you more money to water, feed, and mow. And it doesn't produce anything. So producing food is a long-term solution. It's amazing how much food a person can produce on a quarter of an acre. The Dervaises, California, I always bring these guys up because it's a perfect example. They have a tenth, and they produce 6,000 pounds of food a year. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of effort to make some kind of th- something like that happen. But people will say to themselves, well, there's no way I could do that. Well, maybe you, you can't because that's their full-time occupation. So maybe you can't match that level of production. But you can do some amazing things, and it revolves around perennial plantings, trees, bushes, vines. Those are the things that you want to make the core of, especially when you have limited space, your suburban uh, suburban landscape, your urban landscapes. The, the tree that's taking up space that produces nothing could be a big tree that produces a lot of things. It could be an apple, it could be a pear, it could be a walnut. It could be whatever grows well in your area. If you're in the south, it could be pomegranates. They get up to production very, very fast. You have larger pieces of land, you can wait longer time. Some of them could be long-term producers. They take longer to produce, uh, like shell bar kickeries and pawpaws. But if you have limited space, you have to practice two very important fundamentals. And these are succession and stacking. Stacking is creating a layer system. I've talked about permaculture in the past, a seven-layer system, a canopy, a subtree, vining, things like that. But you can practice this in minuscule. Let's say we have a great big long fence that gets hit by the sun all day long in the summertime. Beautiful place to grow something like grapes. So we go along that fence, and we use the fence as a basis, and we don't go directly on the fence, because if we do that and we have to replace the fence, we have a problem. But off of the fence, we hang a trellis for the grapevines, and we plant grapevines. First year, we get nothing. Second year, we get grapes. Third year, we get more grapes than we can use. So now we're taking the grapes and we're drying them into raisins. We're giving them away. Possibly we're using them to barter. Maybe we're even finding a local, uh, we pr- produce the right uh, grape types. Maybe we're even selling some of them to a local vi- uh, a winemaker. Very, very possible to do. So during this, the time when we don't need them, we take what we need and we, we, we return the surplus into our local economies. That's a permaculture principle. We get to a point where we need them. Hey, I don't like living on grapes, but it beats living on nothing. Okay, makes sense. So now, now the other thing that we do, though, is we're not a commercial vineyard. So we're not limited to wine grapes or table grapes. So if we had, let's say, a fence long enough to plant 20 grapevines, maybe we have two of 10 different varieties. And if we're smart, then we have secession. And what secession means is that we take a early grape to a late grape as far as when they ripen. And we stagger as much succession in there as we can. So that we have grapes becoming available for consumption starting very, very early in the year and going as late into the year as possible. Some climates it may not be as doable as others. 
But every climate where grapes can be grown has some level of that can be done. So then we go into some other things. Let's say we're going to plant four apple trees on our property. We need to worry about cross-pollination, but one great way to fill that in with a very small plant is a couple dwarf crab apple trees. Now we use those for ciders and for jellies and things because they're not the greatest fresh eating. We plant four apple varieties with some cross-pollination potential between them, but we start one as a very early apple and we move to kind of a later apple. Now we stagger out our apples. Those are succession. With apple trees and grapevines. And you can do it with any perennial planting. There's early and late varieties of blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, kiwis. You name it, if it's a fruit, it grows on a bush or a vine. There's early, or even a tree, early and late varieties. And instead of going with the monoculture philosophy, we go with a permaculture philosophy, a multiculture philosophy, which is multiple varieties, and succession in harvest, so that the food is more usable as fresh and easier to preserve, which we'll leave away for now because that's the last part of this today, is preserving what you produce and being a producer that way. So there's your succession. Then we practice stacking. Well, what's stacking? Stacking is making most efficient use of space. So we have this great, huge, long fence, right? Now, it's early in the season. The grapes are barely growing. They're just, just barely starting to bud. We're still getting some nights where we get some frost. We go along the whole fence row, and we plant just one or two peas that can handle cold. Cold-weather peas like a snow pea, a snap pea, along our entire grapevine area. The sun warms the ground because it's a sunny fence. Peas grow. By the time the leaves are full on the grapes, the peas have run their course. They're ready to cut down. You've harvested peas off them. And what do you do? Do you compost them? Hell no. You cut them. You throw them right on the ground, directly underneath your grapevines, and you've produced some of your own mulch. You're also growing comfrey in amongst your grapes. These are pulling nutrients deep from in the soil and making it available. Now you have a great, you're cutting your comfrey, and you're growing maybe some other things, like some clover mixed in there. Right? all around and underneath your grapevines. Cut that back and mulch it. You never walk on the spaces in between the vines. You stay on the outside of the vines as you prune them, trim them, and harvest your grapes. Well, now the grapevines are doing beautiful because it's summertime or early summer, and the leaves are on, and there's a great deal of shade underneath the grapevines. So for most of the day, the area underneath there is shaded. So what do you do now? Now we go in and plant summer varieties of lettuce that get scorched by the sun, and we've turned our fence line into a multi-stacked uh, layer system. We have a canopy and an understory, and we're still growing herbs and other things right in amongst the grapevines. Now what does this do? It puts out confusing scents. It brings in predator insects. All of the plants are less likely to be uh, attacked by what we call pests. An amazing system of production. I won't go deeper than that into it. I just want to give you a concept, an idea of how we can go beyond a garden. Your lettuce doesn't just have to be in a, in a square foot garden or a raised bed garden or anything like that. You can plant, there's beautiful lettuce varieties. And most of them like shade. So you can go into a place that you have landscaped with even some ornamental shrubs. And in the area that gets a little bit of sun but not too much where that lettuce will be protected during the summertime, you plant that lettuce. You plant it in very sunny areas in your, your late falls and your early springs and for some areas your winters. You move things around. You don't have hard, fast rules. So there's food literally throughout the entire yard. That's the way to do this right. Now, here's the thing for the paranoid. Well, if they see my big garden, well, if they see your big garden with a fence around it and everything like that, yeah, it sticks out like a sore thumb. A, a yard, even in suburbia, done this way, doesn't even stand out. It just looks like a garden. It doesn't look like a food garden. It just looks like a, it looks like a, it almost looks untidy in a way. That's good. Like I said, that paranoia doesn't help you anyway. We ever get to roving hordes, they're going to every house on the block. They're not going to skip yours because the windows are boarded. In fact, they may go to yours first. Set up a base of operations after they take you out because they were misled and thought it was easy to get into. And then once they use you as a base of operations, they'll go try to raid my garden. But at least I can defend it. I'm prepared. That's just a thought. And it's a thought only because I don't want to see people not take action and use this as an excuse. So I've said enough about it. I won't say any more about it today. I'll give you my word. 
But moving on to the last level of production, it's the most important and most sustainable level of production. That's becoming a producer of storables, and it works in conjunction with all the production we've just talked about and everything else uh, that's available to us other than commercially stored, uh, commercially prepared storables. So what do I mean by being a producer of storables? Well, let's say that I go out in deer season and I shoot a couple deer. Now, what most people do with the deer, they take it to the butcher, they hand it to the butcher, they pay more money for the butcher to butcher the deer um, than the meat would have cost if they'd just gone to the store and bought beef. Uh, they've probably got thousands of dollars invested into a deer lease and hunting gear and hunting equipment and everything else, and they really not produced anything. They've gone out and practiced a very expensive hobby, and they get to eat some meat at the end of the day. And that meat all goes into a freezer, and if the freezer fails, then the meat spoils or must be eaten very quickly. But let's say I go out and I shoot my deer in my backyard in Arkansas and I bring it home and I skin it myself because I have the skill set and know how to do that. And I bone the meat and I've turned some large portion of it into jerky or biltong. Now I've created a long-term storable. Now if I take that, and with biltong it's not even necessary, but it certainly doesn't hurt matters to vacuum seal it. Vacuum sealed biltong probably will last 10 years minimum. Um, I, I tell a story sometimes. James Capstick, who was a writer for Guns and Ammo and wrote quite a few books, including uh, titles like Death in the Long Grass, Professional Hunter in South Africa, um, is where I learned about Biltong from his writings. And he said he found a piece of Biltong stick from Cape Buffalo wrapped up in aluminum foil that was 15 years old in his game bag uh, when he was cleaning out an old, uh, old hunting uh, cabin at some point as he was wrapping up his career, and he said it was still edible. But taking those things and vacuum sealing them, now I'm producing a storable with hunting fish and game. If I take a fish variety that will smoke well uh, and smoke very hard well, like um, channel catfish. Channel catfish smokes beautifully. You can smoke it as heavily as they smoke salmon, maybe more so. And I take that and I vacuum seal that and I put it in the freezer. Even if the freezer fails, it has a much longer storage life than a piece of fresh fish in a vacuum sealed package. And the fresh fish in the vacuum sealed package, even with limited refrigeration, has a longer shelf life than just one that's wrapped up in aluminum foil. So by taking steps with my, my, my uh, fishing game, I'm producing long-term storables. Okay. Now, and now we move into things like, well, what about with foraging? Let's say that we go out and find a great big blueberry grove, and we're able to pick, you know, 20 quarts of blueberries. We can only eat so many fresh blueberries. Well, we can dry them. We can make them into jams and jellies. Uh, we can we can make preserves. We can make wine. We can make an ale by mixing them with, with some type of barley malt. A blueberry wheat ale, for instance, would be very nice. We can make mead. We can create juice and just jar and can the juice and use it in the future. We can do that, those same things, with things like blackberries, uh, strawberries, and any other wild fruit that we can find. We can go out and we can find uh, wild nuts, and we can prepare them and put them away for long-term storables. So now we're, we're becoming a producer by producing from forage or hunting or fishing and storing the, the, the bounty from that. But then we move it into hyperdrive because if we're doing smart things like growing things in our backyard, maybe on another fence we have it completely covered through the out the year with different varieties of pole beans. And maybe we realize that beans are actually a forest plant. We're not afraid to plant them where they get quite a bit of shade. We have them growing up trees throughout our property. You know, not fully shaded, but mottled shade. And we have beans on our trees. We have beans on our fences. Beans, 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 beans. So at the end of the uh, season, or throughout the season, actually, as we're harvesting anything that we don't eat in the next couple of days, we go ahead and we preserve, either through dehydration or canning. And now we're adding to our pantry from that. And we don't have to really work hard to do this. If we'll stop turning our soil over and just start throwing organic matter and mulch and, and compost on it and let nature do the work and stop walking on the areas that we want to cultivate, provide some level of uh, passive irrigation system, and all of a sudden we have a, a yard that's producing almost year-round for us, and now we're taking the additional step of storing that up. But see, it goes further than that. By having the skill set to, to, to preserve fish, beef, meat, um, 
fruits, vegetables. Now we can say, well, what about our local economy? What can we return of surplus financially to our local economy? So we go down to our local farmer's market, and we grew a lot of beans this year, but we didn't have a lot of luck with yellow wax beans for some reason. Now, our local farmer who, who grows stuff professionally, he was able to produce a whole bunch of yellow wax beans. Now, he has them on sale at the end of his season because he just wants to get rid of them so they don't rot and go bad. He gets nothing out of them for $0.69 cents a pound. So let's say we buy, I don't know, 30 pounds of yellow wax beans. That's a lot. That's going to cost us, what, about 18 bucks? We take those yellow wax beans home. We cut them up. We either dehydrate or we can them. We put them into our storage and in our rotation. Now we've combined storing what we eat and eating what we store, purchasing our lo- from our local economy, and producing a storable with those things for long-term storage up to a year with canned foods, and I would say several years with, with dehydrated. A dehydrated bean rehydrated three years from now, as long as it's stored well, it's not going to taste much different than a dehydrated bean that was dehydrated three weeks ago. It really isn't. So this is how all of these things mesh together, and that's, I think, kind of the, the big thing that, that people need to keep their mind on with food storage. It's not a magic bullet solution. There's no, well, do I store long-term storables or do I, do I go out and buy MREs or do I just buy a case of Mountain House or do I only store what I eat and eat what I store or do I just have a garden and uh, see all of these things have, all of these things have weaknesses. I did beat up on, and I'm not going to beat up on them now, so I'm not breaking my word to you. I did beat up on the people that are a little bit paranoid about somebody coming and taking what you have because you have a garden, but they have, they have a point. Maybe not a total meltdown, but it's just a shortage situation. It does make you somewhat of a target. So you don't just rely on it, but you don't get rid of it. Because whatever they take, they're not going to take it all. It's impossible. And if you have an ongoing reproductive, reparative system that's building the soil in your backyard, there'll always be more food tomorrow. Maybe you didn't get as much as you wanted today, but there'll be some tomorrow. But you can only produce so much. And then there's times of the year where your production stops. And in certain parts of the country, it totally stops. It's too cold. Nothing will grow. You go far enough north, it's dark out most of the day. There's not even any sunlight, let alone heat. So now we have to go back and rely on our storables. Well, those are a mixture of the things we buy from the store, if that's still available, or we bought from the store when that was available. They're a mixture of our long-term storables, our commercially prepared storables like Mountain House, Provided Pantry, Yoder's. Our long-term storables from the, well, we store, store, we eat, canned goods, soups, things like that. They're also the things that we've already produced for ourselves and then converted to storables. And our limited availability to forage and harvest game and fish throughout even the cold parts of the year. When we put all that together, we get resiliency, we get redundancy, and we get independence. And when we take any single one of them out, we create a big kink in the armor. And, you know, I believe in Murphy's Law. If something can go wrong, it will. And that means we need as much redundancy in place as we can, so when things do go wrong, we can backfill. Someone sent me an interesting email yesterday. They said, do you think with all the things that have gone wrong at your bug-out location, it's a sign that maybe it's not the place for you? Absolutely not. The well, last year, it was a $78 part. We didn't know about it. Now we know about it. We keep a spare one on hand. It would take me five minutes to replace it. I think it's wonderful that it happened in a time when it really didn't matter that we were at without a well. It really didn't matter to me at all. The truck breaking down, 75,000 miles on a truck. A part going out, I mean, that's just a coincidence that it happened to be there. Last time the power going out, the power went out for most of Hot Springs. Power went out all over Arkansas. You know, last year, Kentucky Farmer didn't have power for three weeks. Again, I'm glad it happened at a time where it wasn't that critical. It gave us a gut check. Where are we weak? They were three of the best things that have ever happened. I've enjoyed all three of them. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that I'm a crazy survivalist? I enjoyed having my truck break down. You can watch the video on my YouTube channel when the truck was broken down. It was 100 degrees out. It was the 4th of July. We were three miles from our house and three miles from a main road. We had uh, It took AAA like two hours to find us because it so, it's such a hard place to find. And even with the guy on the cell phone, it took you know, calling me back. It took a while for him to get there. And I was in a good mood. Why? It didn't really matter. Neighbor came by and said, hey, when the guy gets here and tows the truck away, will you come pick us up? He said, yeah. 
If he didn't, we would have walked three miles. It would have sucked. We had plenty of water and food on us. We were going out for a hike anyway. We would have just hiked back to our house instead of around uh, a different place. But why were these? Why was it enjoyable to have my power go out when it was seven degrees outside? Because I had a stack of firewood. I had plenty of food. I knew what to do. I didn't panic. My wife knew what to do. We immediately took action. We did it. And if we had to be there for a week that way, we might not have been the happiest people in the world, but we would have been fine. And you know what? The thing is, we would have started to rely on our community, and we would have been there for them too, those people that live up there. That's the way this stuff works if you'll just let it. And you stop worrying about being paranoid about what if someone comes. You know, there's some ancient wisdom that tell us what's, what to do when someone that's hungry comes to your door. If there's any way you can, you feed them. Do that. And the way you do that is you practice abundant living. Everything I've talked about today is abundance. Creating abundance of one fundamental thing you need in your life, and that is food. When you have abundance of something, you don't fear sharing it with your community. And when you share with your community, you build strength. And when a legitimate threat comes, instead of facing it alone, you face it with your community. It's amazing what 10 good men can do. Absolutely amazing. But an army marches on its stomach, so make sure you store food, make sure you produce food, and make sure you feed yourself. With that, I'm going to wrap up. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.